0: Ashes to Ashes. Fun to Funky. Oh, what a catch! Ben Stokes! Oh, the awesome. touch! the band to go, and Harmerson has done it. Now, if England wanted a hero, who've they got striding in? It? Monty Panasar.
2: A half for
0: four. The goes in the air. Eight for 15, Australia all out for 60. The Cricket Badger Rash's 2019 podcast brought to you in association with Cricket 365 with your host James Butler, Cricket 365 Zolly Fisher and journalist Akash Shiva Subramanian.
2: Welcome back to the, well, it's the second of our Ashes Badger podcast as we go through the summer of 2019. Already had some great cricket. We've had the first Test match. It didn't quite go England's way, but big margin of victory for Australia, 251 runs. I think it was actually a little bit closer than that. We'll talk about the first Test. We'll talk about looking ahead to the second Test and all the various permutations left in the summer ahead. But before we do that, let's welcome the terrible twosome, Akash and Ollie. We'll start with you, Akash. How are you? I'm fine. I'm good, actually. Do you sound surprised? <laughs> What's made
3: you especially good? Well, the fact that England could not chase such a target and the fact that England lost the test match and Ashes' this match at home, so makes it uh, double better.
1: Right, that's the last
2: we'll hear of Akash on
1: this podcast. Ollie, how are you? <laughs> uh, a little bit deflated after that first test, but you know. Um, it's good to have Ashley's cricket back, I guess.
2: I, I think it's that first Test match is actually good for the series. You know, Anybody who was thinking home Test match, supremacy, um, England going to stroll it, Australia, all the problems that they've had over the last 18 months, it's good for this series that Australia showed the fight, they showed the bottle, they got home, they got across the line. It's now over to England, Ollie, to come back and, and show what they can do. I think the
1: media overall have been... Been very bullish about England's chances going into that first test, and honestly, I'd be a bit of a hypocrite if I said that I didn't expect us to um, to come out guns blazing in that first test, with it being Edgebaston and our record there. In our um, podcast last week, I picked us to win it, to win the first test, and go on and win the series. Sort of ended up looking like a bit of a fool, really. But I guess full credit to Australia because there were times in that game where they could have perhaps given up if they didn't show the mental resolve and the you know the application and resilience that they did show. They battled back. They put together three or four absolutely perfect sessions really to get themselves into a great position to win the game and then obviously came back in that final day and finished off the job a lot earlier than a lot of people would have been expecting. A few worrying signs for England in there, but yeah, sometimes rivalry aside, etc., you've just got to tip your hat to the opposition and say that they put together a,
2: a very good four and a half days. It might be clutching at straws, but if you look at it from England's perspective, for the first three days, they were in control of that test match despite... Not having Jimmy Anderson at their disposal, he pulled up after four overs on that first morning. And with all due respect to him, Moeen Ali was absent without leave. He was poor. In the first test match So Jerry Effectively Captaining that bowling side With one hand tied Behind his back For much of that test
1: Yeah absolutely And that's basically The only way that you can look at it As you said Moeen was just um, Basically completely Ineffectual He took one wicket In the first innings And uh, in the second innings He took two But went for 130 And actually Really struggled to hold down And then he went at Basically four and a half And over Which doesn't actually Really help anybody And then with the bat Yeah he was pretty useless You know he scored Four runs combined And then Jimmy going off As he did after 4 over was a massive massive blow for us because he'd started that spell really well beating the back quite a lot but it does it does raise a few questions you know did Jimmy basically pick himself for that game and say that he was 100% fit because he was desperate to play but probably knew deep down it wasn't a good idea or was it just one of those things that happened they didn't land right or whatever and and he's tweaked it again but yeah it looks like he he could even be done for the series so that's a bit of a worry but you know reading all kinds of reports at the moment some saying he'll be back some saying that he could be done for a while I think there'll be a couple of changes going into that second test obviously as is natural after a defeat like that and with with the injury but I don't know I guess Root yeah he had his hands tied behind his back and he must be pretty down about the performance overall I mean he said it best in his post-match press conference when England lose test matches they seem to to really lose them in a fashion that is quite worrying. We need to find a way to stop the bleeding at the right times and just do the basics right. Unfortunately it didn't happen for us at Edgbaston and the next one's a bit of an ominous one with it being Lords but let's just see how it goes. You know the sign of a good team is how they bounce back.
2: Akash, looking at the two sides after the first Test match, even before the Test match, there's not much between them, is there? That was a big margin of victory, but I don't think even at Edgebaston there was a huge amount between those two sides. It's threatening to be a very, very good series. It's uh, certainly becoming a good series. And uh, another thing is, uh, as you rightly mentioned, it's it's
3: not much between these sides. The only difference was probably that uh, Australia won the toss, and they had the last day to Nathan Leung. That, that's, a, that's a huge advantage. Bowling Nathan Lane on the last day on, on that condition is outright victory because he, he's a world-class bowler. And uh, there have been a lot of tweets against Nathan Len saying that he didn't perform well in the first innings. The first innings he bowled on second day and third day where there's not much purchase for the spinners. He, he's going to have a huge say on this series and uh, he's certainly started in the, the right
2: manner. If you look at Nathan Lyon's career stats, though, he usually takes more wickets in the first innings than he does in the second inning. So it's ominous for England that he did rock up on day five. But going back to the very start of the Test match, the toss, Australia winning it and then batting, obviously soon, suddenly found themselves 120-odd for eight. But it was always going to be, if they could get some runs on the board along the way, it was always going to be an advantage to bowl last on that wicket. It was certainly a good toss to
3: win. And uh, there was a lot of criticisms on Twitter again for uh, Tim Payne electing to bat first on that condition when when they know that uh, the English seamers are well suited for for those kind of conditions with overcast uh, conditions and the pitch favoring them. But it's also good to note that on day four and uh, day five, the batting conditions are going to be tough. And it's not easy to play on these conditions. We've seen uh, in the past how India has suffered. Certainly we have seen this test match how England has suffered. So it's not easy to bat on day five when the ball is turning square. So it's a good toss to win. The first innings did not go... Quite the way Australians would have thought it would could could have gone, but uh,
2: certainly looking at it now, it says it's a good, it's a really good toss to win on those conditions. You mentioned Tim Payne there getting some stick at the start of the Test match. All of that's forgotten temporarily, at least now with Australia having won the first Test match. But fans are very fickle, aren't they? You know, I've seen a lot of people criticising a number of the England side now, who only if a matter of weeks ago they were praising to high heavens um, after winning the World Cup and and what have you. Things change very quickly in cricket, don't they? You've got to ride the wave when it's there. And Tim Payne coming into that under a a little bit of scrutiny will feel a lot better as Australian captain now, Akash. As a captain, he would feel better. But uh, I'm not sure that he was the the
3: real captain on the field because on day two and day three, we could see a lot of decisions taken by Steve Smith with the the fielding and all of those. So I thought uh, probably Tim Payne, needs to step up more, because with the bat, he, we've not seen a good performance yet so far in the last, say, six or seven test matches, and uh, certainly with so much competition right now in uh, Australian domestic circuit, the wicketkeeper
2: category, so it was going to be tough for Tim Payne to hold on to his position if he does not bat well. If everything was equal, Tim Payne wouldn't be in that test side, would he? But he took it over 18 months ago, Sam Pei gate, he's done a fantastic job for Australia, in keeping them together, keeping them afloat and keeping them pointing in the right direction as they head into this Ashes series. I think you just said about the Stephen Smith thing on the field there. I think that's a little bit of a a media red herring. It's a nice little story for the media to say, oh, Stephen Smith's captain in that side on the pitch when Tim Payne's captain by name. You look as a captain, surely, for your senior player. Stephen Smith's got vast amounts of experience as captain and as a player. If you're Tim Payne, you'd be rather silly not to be taking his advice and taking his guidance, wouldn't you, Akash? That's true. That's my next point. Uh, the
3: next point would be that one is Steven Smith with the with the with the batting, the way he managed the pressure and all of that. And with the bowling, I think one particular name that, that did not get the, the the credits he deserved was Peter Siddle. The way he managed with all the bowling and all the bowlers, the way he went and advised them saying There's a lot of clips in the in the second innings particularly when he went to Pattinson and he said bowl this line could get wickets, and he went to Cummins and said, "This is the length that we are looking at." And uh, certainly, that's how it has become now. It's it's not just Tim Payne as a skipper, but they have the they have certain roles for uh, the other experienced players also. Peter Siddle filling in with that uh, with his bowling unit, and uh, Steven Smith with the batting unit. So I think that that's a good point to note that they have multiple leaders within the same lineup.
0: The Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com, their ethos. We love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger Podcast.
2: Looking at Stephen Smith's batting then, we can't go through a podcast after that first test match without mentioning his two centuries and the fact that England just... Simply can't get him out. I've got a theory with this, fellas, that England have been bitten by Stephen Smith all the way through that test match. We're getting the stats about how he averages over 130, I think it is now, over the last 10 tests against England. He tends to succeed against England, and I think they're massively scarred by that. I get the impression that England start off against Stephen Smith expecting him to score runs. And in the same way as a batsman, if you fear failure as a batsman, if all you can see is catching fielders, you tend to lob up a catch and you're out. As a bowler, if you're anticipating the, bowl, the batsman that you're, you're bowling at is going to score runs against you, you're on a, on a losing streak before you even start aren't you. And You have to give Stephen Smith credit because he is the best batsman in the world at the moment. The stats don't lie. he is superb. But I think England are almost beaten, Ollie, before they even start bowling against Stephen Smith at the moment.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think you're right with the reasoning behind it too, you know. We have been bitten many times by him in in Ash's test and we've had enough time now uh, bowling at him and we've had enough time to prepare for this series and, and for previous series to sort of try and work out a game plan of how to at least trouble him. So far we're not there yet, so that's a bit of a worry. Uh, obviously scored t- over 280 runs combined in that first test alone. Honestly, wouldn't surprise me if he would say to me go on and score a thousand runs in the series or something like that, because we really do not look like getting him out. He looks so comfortable. It looks like he's netting. You know, we can't trouble him with line or length. We can't trouble him with bin bowling because he makes Moeen look like a part-timer, quite frankly. And even if we had discovered some kind of vulnerability with the short ball, you know, we can bring Archer in for the second test, for example, to try and rough him up a little bit. But at least we-, we need to see something, some kind of proactive plan to try and rough him up a bit because uh, at the moment he's just going to find it incredibly easy but it's one of those things you've got to as well give a lot of credit to Steve Smith because he's settled back into Ashes cricket absolutely Perfectly, you know. He put played some fantastic shots across both innings. Had the fielders running all over. I think you look at that first innings in particular for Australia when when as mentioned they were a sort of 122 for an eight. But but Smith was still there. He was still rooted at the crease. And rather than try and get his wicket and effectively end the innings, we were just trying to get the man out at the other end. And that was the case from from about the fourth wicket onwards. I might say that's a natural thing to do when you've got one of the best players in the world at the crease and the rest are kind of, you know, your lower middle order and then your tail enders. But honestly, you've got to always be looking to take wickets regardless of who's there. Um, so we went to damage limitation, I think, in both the first and second innings a bit too soon. But we we need to see something. We need to see a plan moving forward
2: because
1: if he does go on and score, you know, 800, 900, 1,000 runs this series, then quite frankly, I don't think we'll be on the winning end of it.
2: I think you just hit on something really important there because if you're giving the message to a batsman that you don't believe you can get him out by effectively giving him runs and trying to target the other end, a lot of sports played in the head, isn't it? Confidence Mm -hmm. is huge. And you're feeding that to to one of the best batsmen in the world. You're feeding him with confidence and you're feeling... And fielding with him with the messages that you don't believe you can get him out, which makes him almost immune to, to wickets, doesn't it? They talk about plans and all these different plans they have. One of the plans that they try against Stephen Smith is to put the ball outside the off stump. He obviously comes across his stumps, stick the ball in that corridor outside the off stump, make him fetch it, make him lose his concentration, maybe flash at one and, and get out. But England lose faith in that plan before Stephen Smith's concentration disappears.
1: 100% that's it. He was very happy if we were bowling, bowling on sort of fifth, sixth stump. You know, Steve Smith, the batsman, who because of the adjust, adjustments he's made to his technique, which was something that he revealed in that thing with Nasser Hussain, the, the masterclass that he did that was shown all throughout the test. He's made adjustments to his game where he now takes guard on leg stump and basically sort of makes a little movement in towards middle so he always knows where his off stump is. So when we were bowing on fifth, sixth stump, he was happy to just shoulder arms and let them go through. And ultimately, like you say, we we got frustrated and we jacked in the plan before he made any mistakes. And then we started bowling onto the stumps and started straying a little bit towards his legs. And he's one of the best players in the world at, at flicking bowlers off legs and, and off his legs. And that, yeah, we, we didn't look like we had a backup plan or anything remotely resembling a backup plan. So he's back to the drawing board for us, definitely. Or do we just sort of go back to that and hope that Joffre can provide something that we were missing in that first test? I don't know. It's one of those things sometimes. I think you just have to acknowledge the greatness when you see it and
2: hope that at large he doesn't come back to us again it's pleasing to me anyway that you've uh, not even used the word booing anymore you're starting to respect the man (laughs) and that's how it should be you've got to appreciate genius when you see it i think and applaud genius you you, you can boo and respect at the same time Mm -hmm. akash let's get back to you if you're trying to sort of bore out a batsman If you're trying to frustrate that batsman, and if you've got plans to, like I say, stick it in that channel outside of Stump, you've got to persevere with that plan, haven't you? Because at the moment, Stephen Smith is outminding, outplaying, totally outmanoeuvring the England attack. Well, there's this one thing to play well in
3: English conditions, that is to leave the ball outside of Stump. And uh, we've seen so many players in the past, including Virat Kohli, who's failed to do it. And uh, he's, he's managed to poke it outside of Stump and slip it, like get the edge to the slips, But what Steve Smith has done in this, this match is particularly amazing because he left all the balls outside of them. He made the bowler come, come right into his spot. The pressure was on the bowlers because outside of them was not working. So they had to go for plan B. Short balls were not working. So they had to go, go for another plan. And by the time they reached that plan, he is always already comfortable and he is able to knock it down for a single, for a boundary. Whatever, he was just dictating the, the, the entire game. So I don't think the pressure is on the bowler because England, the in the first innings, England lost one of the best bowlers. If James Anderson was there, probably things would have been different by now because he's one bowler who can constantly challenge even a well-settled batsman. So I think that was unfortunate for England because they had to, to lose uh, James Anderson. But for the second test match, I think... They could they could mix it up and probably bring a left arm pace in form of Sam Curran for Steve Smith, which might shake things a bit. But I'm I'm not sure if there is any secret ingredient or if there is any ingredient to
2: get Steve Smith out because we've not found it yet. On the face of it, Akash, if you I saw some freeze frames of him at the point of the bowler's delivery. Most of the time, he's got his right foot outside his off stump. He's got his left foot outside his leg stump. He's straight down the looking straight down the track front onto the, the bowler. It is not the position that, as a coach, you would tell any batsman to get into, but he's just got such good reading of every bowler that he's facing. He's got such good hand-eye coordination and such trust in his own ability to get bats on ball that even when it looks like it's going to squeeze past the blade, he still manages to get the middle of the bat on it. He's a, he's a, he's a freak of nature, isn't he? He's certainly a freak of nature. And uh, if you've seen him
3: practice, he does that the way he stands at the end point when, when he's about to face the bowler is what gives him his confidence. And if, if his back is held in such an angle or in such uh, positions, he gets his momentum and then he can swing the bat. Uh, so it's it's more like this this kind of thing only suits him. If uh, it is tried by uh, any one of us or any other professional cricketer, it might be difficult because then you have to hold the bat steady at the last moment, which is very difficult when you're Constantly switching from outside leg to outside off. So this is one thing that only Steven Smith can can do in world cricket right now. Probably the only way to get him out is challenge his thoughts and abilities, and then bowl it right in the in the channel of his uncertainties, right off middle and off stump, so that when he's moving it, it becomes difficult for him to look at the ball or uh, face the ball. So something like that out-of-the-box plan is what uh, England can come up with. And like I told, a left-arm seamer can provide that option, but it's up to the management on what they might do for the next step. They
2: they need to stick to their plans and remember he's, he's a human being, even though most of the time it appears that he isn't a human being. He still is. He's flesh and blood and he can be got out. England need to find a way.
0: It's that Badger style.
2: One of the most talked about issues was umpiring. Nine, I think it was, in the end, decisions overturned on review. More mistakes were made than that as well, well into double figures in terms of mistakes, Joel Wilson being the, the main culprit. These guys are paid to make the decisions, and at the moment, they're not making them, Ollie. There were some quite big, glaring mistakes made in that first test. There was, yeah, there was some absolute shockers. There's no two
1: ways about it. I understand, and this is something that obviously you've mentioned before, umpiring is not easy it's a series of split second decisions and especially when it's at the at the very pinnacle of the sport as it is in the ashes the pressure to get these decisions right you know will obviously weigh on shoulders a lot more but the fact that there were nine mistakes was was absolutely shocking Joe Root was given out and saved by review four
2: times in the first test. You say nine, Ollie, but there was actually more than that. They were the only ones that were reviewed, weren't they? The, there were some mistakes that weren't reviewed, so we were well into double well, figures. Well, it was over
1: ten. Well, it was into double figures, yeah, definitely.
2: But in terms of the ones that actually got reviewed,
1: it's bad. I mean, Joe Wilson has become kind of the unfortunate, I say unfortunate face of it, he made the errors. But unfortunately, he, he's the one who's getting all the flack at the moment for a series of, I guess, what you'd call gaffes. But he's scheduled to stand in the third test, which is quite... quite Quite funny, you know, the pressure will be all back on him again, but yeah, it is very very difficult to umpire, don't get me wrong and I do have the, I do have sympathy in a, in a bizarre sense when they do make mistake after mistake because it's very clear then that they've kind of lost all of their sense of judgement and that's what seemed to happen in the first test um, there was a couple of times, when, in fact there were multiple times when the, the player in question reviewed a decision and walked down to their non-striking partner and, and basically had a big smile on their face as if to say, you know, I've hit that or that Going way down like stump or stuff like that. I do also think though that if you're gonna if you're gonna hold the players to account in the biggest arena of all, then you also need to to hold the match officials to account as well. When they make mistakes, they they should be called out as such. But yeah, I do I do have a degree of sympathy as well.
2: They're exposed, aren't they? I, I wrote a piece of Cricket Three Six Five this week about umpiring, and you know a batsman has 0.6 seconds from the ball being released to actually hitting it. Um, to make a decision how to play the ball. Well, the umpire's pretty much got exactly that same amount of time to judge line, movement, movement off the pitch whether the batsman's hit it the point of impact on pads there's so many factors that go into making a decision and they don't get the luxury ollie of all of the countless replays that we see i mean a lot of the times i think to the naked eye i was thinking that's going down leg side, that's not out and then it proved to be so but some of those mm-hmm. decisions you're watching it with your naked eye you can't see they've done anything wrong and then the glaring error comes back when you've seen it 20 times on super slow-mo and then it's obvious but it's not obvious when you're a human being at the 22 yards away from the uh the other other stumps is it
1: Oh, of course not. No, it's, it's very hard. As you say, it's less than a second reaction time. They're still 20-odd yards away. And all they can do is, is judge what they've seen based on, you know, with the naked eye first impressions. And it's only with the benefit of hindsight through all the various replay technologies that we have now. And even, you know, DRS with, with having the Snicker and Ultra Edge, sorry, and with having Hawkeye that we can spot the clear and obvious errors now, which is what it's in place to do. But just as an example, that, that Warner uh, LBW in the very first innings where Broad got him from round the wicket. I said at the time that's absolutely plumb and then obviously they showed it with the with the um, Hawkeye, and it was sliding quite comfortably comfortably down the leg side. So I think it just goes to show that you know your initial decision can be based on a number of different factors. You know where the ball hit and it's just so difficult there's, there's so many different things to keep an eye on and as we've mentioned the reaction time and the fact that you stood 20 odd yards away it doesn't it doesn't make it easy but ultimately I guess it's like referees in in football to an extent you know if you're on the biggest stages there because you're considered to be one of the best and therefore the errors should in theory be kept to a minimum so we just got to hope that it doesn't become a constant topic throughout this
2: series. I think the powers that be are listening to the Cricket Badger podcast because we we made a a suggestion a few weeks ago that no balls should be reviewed upstairs rather than on the pitch. They're talking about doing that now for no ball rulings, which I think would take something away from the umpire. And he's able to just look forward rather than down and then up, which obviously that change in head changes maybe a little bit of the angle that they see too but Akash it's, it is a tough job isn't it and m- one of my suggestions in the article I wrote for cricket 365 is that we use technology we don't see technology as being the the preserve of the TV companies it should be the technology is the umpires and it's all part of the same umpiring process and in a way the fact that we saw nine decisions overruled by DRS shows that DRS is working the fact that that review system in there is actually making the right decisions in the end Akash it's true that DRS is working and it's
3: working uh, right for the for the teams. There are certain decisions on day one that was glaring because you could, on TV screens, you could hear the edge at first and then you're like, it's not out for sure. But the umpires could not, when they are just there and they they have stump mics and everything working in their favor. So there were a few decisions that was glaring, but certainly it's not easy to be an umpire. And also after the first or second day, I think Ricky Pointing came up with uh, the, the saying that you should not have, I mean, the scraping of neutral umpires and all of that because it makes sense. Seven out of 12 umpires on the list are either Australians or English people. And if you put them, then again, that, that is going to be a major factor and that's going to be a major talking point because then you'll say that umpires are favoring one side over the other. So again, there are only five neutral umpires. And if the if those five neutral umpires are like this, then there's not much ICC can do with this right now. So it will take time, but there were some errors which are, which are glaring. But we can use technology for up to the next thing so for example if the two teams are out of reviews, then what do you do then you have to just accept the decisions and you don't have much choices so that's where that's where the question comes what happens when the team loses their reviews and the umpire gives the wrong decision?
2: i in my piece i was suggesting that uh, as i suggested to you guys on the podcast that umpires call should go and uh, a certain amount or or some of the balls should be hitting the stumps for an lbw and there should be only one possible outcome from a delivery. But you just hinted there at one of my other suggestions, Akash, that maybe a few more reviews available to either side. Because to me, you're watching Joe Root, you're watching Tim Payne out there. They've got enough on their plate, captain on their side. They've got a, hopes of their nation behind them. They've got their field placings, the morale, all the rest of it to look after in their own side. Umpiring the game should not be the job of a captain on the pitch or the batsman. He's thinking about batting he shouldn't have to think about whether to review or not to review that's the umpire's job but if we're going to go down the the route of reviews give them enough reviews to last the whole game don't make it a lottery so there's a a review every single ball it shouldn't be a situation where you have a certain amount of reviews once you've used those reviews then drs is not available to that side for the remaining 40 overs 50 overs or whatever of the the innings you need to have some kind of recourse don't you If, if a captain feels that he's been wronged there has to be a way for him to actually get out of that otherwise what's the point of having it in the first place two reviews are not in- enough and given that uh, we've seen in the first is that
3: uh, there's so many reviews taken by the batsmen so two is certainly not enough is it also possible to give them reviews uh, like unlimited kind of reviews because then it it takes ever for every decision to be reviewed because if you're just going to give them reviews after reviews then is, is this just is going to uh, go up every every dismissal. So I don't think that's the point. What they could implement, in fact, is uh, like they implemented in the Wimbledon is have five reviews or whatever, five or three reviews. I probably three reviews for every 50 overs, which makes sense because then it gives some only 50 overs and it gives them three reviews to use. So probably they could do something like that or they could just increase it to five per 90, which could probably influence more decisions to be given
2: proper. That, that's why I suggested in my piece, Akash, that you, you have your reviews are regenerated after a certain amount of time so that you always or pretty much always have some reviews up your sleeve. If you if you've lost them early, you've still got some coming back to you at some stage, because at the moment, there's too much jeopardy involved for me as a captain on the field. That you know, Do you review? Do you not review? You feel as if you're hard done by. You feel as if you've got a wicket. But do you want to risk your review? Because you've only got one left. The decision making shouldn't be theatre for the crowd. The decision making should be to get to the right decision. That's true. That's one system that I think uh, both of us agree on that uh,
3: the ICC should change in the coming years. But also, if you look at it the other way, there, we've seen a lot of batsmen who waste the reviews early on in the innings, which again is a learning curve because then you you have to tell your batsmen to use the review carefully because even plumb decisions are reviewed nowadays, So which which I don't think is a good thing for a batsman. They should know if he's out or not out, and they should be clear on whether he's out or not out. So... That's why the ICC could probably argue saying that that's why there are only two reviews. We could uh, counter argue saying that uh, there could be increased. So that, that's, it's, it's a never ending debate for now, but I think ICC would probably get in something or get in some changes after Ashes series, not during it.
0: Hi, my name is Brian Laura, and you're listening to the Cricket Batcher podcast.
2: Let's move on then to the second test. England, I've seen a lot of calls on social media for changes galore to be made. I saw one tweet this morning from somebody I quite respect who said there's only three or four of the England team that should be penned in for that second test match and you could make wholesale changes. Now, you go back to 2005, I mean, Michael Vaughan's suggesting a a number of changes. After they lost that first test in 2005 in the iconic series, he made no changes at all going to the second test and they ended up winning the series. I think that England will probably, as near as damn it, stick to that same 11 as they had in that first Test match. They'll want to show... They have faith in the players. They want to try and give some confidence into those players, including Moen Ali, I think, probably. The only change that I think the ECB will make is Joffrey Archer in for Jimmy Anderson. I think other than that, it'll be the same eleven. I would also change Moeen Ali. I think he's a liability or was a liability in that first Test match. He needs to go back to Worcester, get some county runs, and then come back a, a better player, probably in the winter, because at the moment, his batting and his bowling is letting England down and letting his captain down it's also unfair on him. You know, you're sticking him in there in the glare of an Ashley series, to be exposed like that when he's short of confidence, short of form, it can't do his mental health and everything else any good whatsoever. So I, I think England will make the minimal changes going into that second Test match. And the other point, really, is that if they did want to suddenly make a load of changes to this side... You look at county cricket, and they're all playing T20 at the moment. There's a precious little red Bull being played by the likes of Dominic Sibley or Zach Crawley or any of the other players that could potentially come into that eleven. So another reason, Nolly, to probably stick to the same eleven as close as they can. Yeah, definitely.
1: Obviously, it's an interesting point there that you touched on. I mean, there's no Division One cricket again in the County Championship until August the 18th. So it's not as if anybody, as you mentioned, Sibley, Crawley. Uh, or any of the others that are on the fringe uh, could have the opportunity to kind of bray on the door and, and try and snatch a place so perhaps there needs to be something looked into again it will be retrospective and after the series about how the scheduling of the, of the county championship works
2: particularly during home fest series That's only going to get worse isn't it with the advent of the 100 coming in to um, exactly, yeah. take yeah. up much of the summer we're only going to get to a stage now where the county championship is bookending the season and, and is almost seen as a secondary competition in if anything the Australians have got more Red Bull cricket than the England reserves because they're playing a, a two-day game. Is it against Worcester this week to go through some of their potential changes? England don't have that luxury.
1: No, they don't. They don't. And as you say, it's only going to get worse uh, in into next year. You know, just touching on the county championship, you're right. It has been bookending the season, you know, for basically the last two or three years now. I, I don't think that playing a bulk of games uh, to to kick off the season and then sort of waiting until... Mid to late August for it all to come back again is is very beneficial for anybody at all, but it doesn't matter because it's not the money maker in the eyes of ECB. So moving forward, that's certainly not going to change for the for the better, or at least in the eyes of cricket purists and those who want the Test team to be the best it can possibly be. So you know that that is only going to become worse uh, as a situation overall. But yeah, just going back to. To changes for the second test I think obviously we're going to be forced into one Um I expect Archer to come in for, for Anderson um, for obvious reasons but I think there's there's two there's a twofold reason as to why making wholesale changes would be a bad idea the first one being that Joe Root would basically be admitting to, to the players that he gives the chop for the second test that he didn't really actually have that much even medium-term long-term faith in them at all um so that wouldn't really reflect well to the rest of the to the dressing room, um, by just been in them off after one test. And of course there aren't the the ready made ready made replacements to step up into the top order. And if there if there are the lights of Crawley and Sibley are being considered, then you're throwing them into the heat of the fire as well. So it becomes a a much more magnified test of their ability and the second reason is that it shows in my opinion mental weakness to the to the opposition i think if we were to make four or five changes going into that second test the australians would be laughing at us they'd be saying we've completely lost the plot and we flapped it and we've thrown our our plans out of the window and we, we look altogether more vulnerable for it yes you know you want to adapt and change and tweak little bits here and there and there will be horses for courses situation but we need to get back into that back into this series at the best way to do that is to stick with the established players that you know that have the quality to put together good good sessions back to back and to really take control of the game and ultimately get us over the line so don't expect wholesale changes and if anything hope it's just one or two i would also possibly swap ali out for Leach, because leech honestly looks more useful at the bat with the bat than ali does at this point but i don't think it's going to happen i think they'll i think they'll give mo another test
2: at least but yeah
1: I don't like the idea of us making multiple changes.
2: But I've got a theory with Moen Ali, and it's not very complimentary to him, to be honest. But I really like him. When he's on form and they're playing some of the second-string test teams, he looks a world-beater. But you look at Moen Ali's test record against Australia, and it is shocking. 11 test matches now, he averages with the ball well over 60. To me, a flat-track bully, if you like. When things are going right and the teams, the momentum's there, the platform's been laid, he looks like an absolute class act. When the pressure's on, and he knows he's under the microscope and knows he's under the pressure to perform, when he's thrown the ball in the the fourth innings on a turner and he knows that he's expected to take five for... That's when he shrinks, and that's when he goes within himself. If you look at the World Cup, he lost his place in the England World Cup side. I know it's a totally different format, but the one innings that he played that was any good in that World Cup was when England already had 400 on the board and he came out and hit 31 off nine balls or something and hit a couple of sixes. All of the other times when he had the bat in his hand during that World Cup, he was under pressure. He let that get to him and he didn't perform. I I, I have major concerns with Mo and Ali... Mentally, in the, can he actually look the Australians in the eye and actually believe himself that he is a front-line spinner in test cricket? And I think if he's honest with himself, the answer is no to that, Ollie. I think he doesn't believe that he should be a front-line test spinner. And there are reasons for that, because when he was first picked, he was picked as a batsman that might be able to get you two or three overs at some stage in a test match. And because of the lack of spin up options for England, they've made him into a spinner. And he's done really well. For somebody coming from that starting point, he's done really well. But he's not a frontline test spinner for me, Oli.
1: No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think the difference between Ali and Nathan Lyon were absolutely, you know, chalk and cheese in that first test. For me, a lot has been made in the past about you know, Moeen Ali's stats and about how with the ball his average has been. I don't think it is now, but it has been around the same as Graham Swan, who was obviously a specialist spinner. There's there's a fundamental difference for me in that he can't really hold down an end and build pressure over after over, as we saw Nathan Lyon do and have seen him do on, on multiple occasions. As I was saying, that second innings he went at four and a half and over or something like that, which is just, you know, even for a part time spinner, that is quite frankly ludicrous. It's an interesting point to kind of. Question his mental toughness and, and say, is this the guy who's going to stand up in the face of a of a very bullish side and, and command the game, take it by the scruff of the neck and say, look, I am good enough to be here. I don't really know. Frankly, he's in too big a hole at the moment where, you know, perhaps if he was if he was batting well and he'd, he'd sort of scored 70, 80 runs in that first test, but it hadn't quite happened with the ball or vice versa. He chipped in with a few useful wickets, but had a couple of low scores. At least there's something to cling on to there. But at the moment, he's kind of stealing his place in this team. He needs to find a purpose again very, very quickly. If you to ask me now if I think he's a lost cause and, and whether we should be looking instantly for someone to come in and take his place, I would honestly say yes, because quite frankly, he's 32. You know, it's not as if he's a if he's a 24, 25 year old kid who we should keep giving experience in the hope that they develop into something. Mo Ali should be playing the best cricket of his career right now, and he hasn't been doing that for for months now. I think the ship's basically sailed um, in the in the
2: nicest possible way. A couple of points off that, Sakhalin Mushtaq's currently working with Mo Ali to change his action, and you think I'm thinking when I'm seeing that this guy is 32. He's got loads of test wickets behind him. He should be at the moment the finished article for England and he's not. And that that would be a major worry for me with Moen Ali in terms of his bowling that, you know, you shouldn't be tinkering with a 32-year-old spinner's action. Not to the degree they are doing. They, you know, his arm was at right angles and they're talking about bringing it closer to his body and changing everything. And I think that's taking away a bit of his confidence as well. You know, you start changing somebody's action when they're so used to having the groove of their previous action, that can't do them any good. And as you said, Ollie, you know, in the first innings England were out for an ashley giles that could go at two and over and just hold one end up in the second innings they were crying out for graham swan who can never be accused of being short of confidence who would have believed in himself to go out there and take five or six wickets Moen ali's neither of those two and i think they need to look for somebody else but then again there's no county cricket being played there's no spinner sticking his hand up saying i'm taking red ball wickets at the moment so even jack leach whose star is on the rise and whose image is being built up after the back of Moen Ali's first test appearance, that was purely off the back of 90 yard with a bat, which you're not expecting a Jack Leach to get. You're talking about selecting a spinner, two-bowl spin, and I've seen Matt Parkinson, the leg spinner at Lancashire, who I think is a terrific bowler. He's just playing T20 at the moment, and he's playing it very nicely, but do you take somebody who's... Succeeding in T20 cricket and say, Here's a Red Bull, go out there and bowl the Aussies out? I'm, I'm not sure you do. Um, Akash, if you were an England selector, would you select Moen Ali for the second test?
3: Well, I wouldn't select Moeen Ali for the second test because his confidence has been pretty low for, for the past six, seven months. I wouldn't say he is being dropped, but I would say he's being rested and he's been given time off. That doesn't say that he's been dropped because if you say he's being dropped, then, then the confidence suddenly, no, we you know that it uh, goes down and I'll let him work closely with Sakhalin to develop into a better cricketer for the next series. That would be one change that I would do. And uh, certainly the other change would be Joffre Archer for James Anderson, which is obvious because that's going to happen.
0: In recent weeks on the Cricket Pazzy Radio Show podcast, we've had David Gower, we've had Joe Root, we've had Daniel Norcross, Gordon Greenwich, Desmond Haynes, Joel Garner, Ronnie Arani, Chetiswa Pajara, James Foster, Daniel Baldruman, Sam Hain, Brett oliveira Keaton Jennings, Delray Rawlings, Richard Gleeson, Anthony McGrath, Paul Collingwood. We're building up quite a few test caps, and there are many, many more to come. Thank you so much. For all your comments on the Cricket Badger Radio Show podcast, it is much appreciated as it goes from strength to strength. You can find the podcast every single week on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Deezer, Radio Public. We're growing, grow with us. Have your say on all things cricket. Contact us on Twitter at cricket underscore badger. By email, cricketbadger at hotmail.com. Comment on things mentioned in shows, suggest Future topics for future programs. Get involved as Cricket Radio Show podcast continues to go from strength to strength.
3: But there's one decision or there's one change that we did not discuss yet, which is Joe Denley, because Joe Denley is 33 and uh, he's been brought in in the series, but he's not played to his uh, expectations. He's not certainly played in the Ireland test or in the first test. So I think that position, that sorry, number four, could be under the scanner. So what you could probably do is Take him out, put Stokes at number four, and then bring in Sam Curran because it's Lords and Lords meaning left hand left arm seamers get more advantage. So bringing in Sam Curran also gives a, a batting option and also a left arm bowling option. So probably three changes, but if it is more than three, I think uh, it would be panicked, and I don't think English selectors would want to say wouldn't want to want the team to re panic after just one Test match. So that would be the three changes that I could suggest.
2: I agree with two of those. I quite like what I've seen of Joe Denley, but I think he's he's quickly turning into a James Vince. He's playing nice 20s and 25s and looking really good. Some of the cover drives he's played have been absolutely awesome. You know, he's technically correct. I think he's got the game for Test cricket. He just needs to have the mind for Test cricket as well. My only other change in that side would be to move Jason Roy down to number four to give him some protection from that new ball because Jason Roy is frankly not a test opener. I've said it right from the start before he was picked that he just goes at the ball too hard. He he doesn't leave enough balls outside of his off stump and it's unfair on him, I think, to actually try and get him to become a a red ball test opener in the heat of an Ashes battle. Move him down to number four where I think he could actually be quite destructive, more in the kind of Kevin Peterson mould. And actually, put Joe Denley up to the top of the order because he's technically correct. He plays nice shots, but at the moment he's James Vince in in a different type of clothing. Ollie, to me, he just he just needs a score, doesn't he? He just needs a score and needs that stickability at the crease.
1: Yeah, he does. He does, and that's actually very much the.
2: The case with sort of quite
1: a few of England's top order, to be honest. You know, it wouldn't be fair to just uh, entirely point the finger at Roy or Denley. You know, Butler scored six runs combined in the game. It, it, it all kind of fell apart at the wrong moment. Um, obviously, we've got the positive of Rory Burns, who looked absolutely fantastic in that first inning. In terms of his opening partner, before the first test, when we recorded obviously the first uh, the first podcast ahead of the Ashes, I was all for giving Jason Roy a go at opening. I, I thought that, you know what, if, if there's a strength. Uh, of Australia it's their frontline bowling so if we if we have someone who's going to challenge them who's not just going to sit there and and essentially be a a non-moving target then it could potentially work out but it is a risk and acknowledge you know it's only been one test it's only been one test so I don't think it's an absolute definite conclusion but Roy has shown some some obvious holes in his technique both his actual You know, technical technique and the mental side of it where, like you say, he just doesn't seem to be able to leave alone balls outside off stump. Um, There was obviously the period heading into the final day when we just needed to, to bat out however many overs it was, eight overs, something like that. He took a swing at a couple, one outside off stump and one that was sort of a pullable length on the leg side and just didn't get anywhere near either of them and just found yourself shouting at the TV, like, what are you doing, Jason? We just need to get through until the morning. And it looked as if he was almost trying to, to hit the lacquer off the ball. But obviously, then you look at the, his wicket in the in the second innings when he decided to um, walk into a different postcode to try and take on Nathan Lyon and got his, his middle and off stump uh, knocked over. That was just also incredibly frustrating
2: there's no doubt that if you if you're facing a spinner on the final day of a test match you need to use your feet you need to try and maneuver him around you need to put some pressure on him because you can't just let him settle into a a line and length and bowl at you but there's ways of doing that and joe Joe root was showing how to do that he was getting back deep in his crease he was taking the occasional foray further forward but he was playing along the ground he was he was flicking away and nerdling and nudging rather than trying to smack him into a different city and to me there's a few few stats for Jason Roy. He's got very little red ball opening experience. That was back in 2013 for Surrey. Usually for Surrey, he's batting four or five. There will never, ever have been a time in his career when in a pressurised situation like that, he's turned up on day five of a game and had to bat through, the, been tasked with batting through the whole day without giving his wicket away and bat sensibly. He's never been given that responsibility before in his life the longest he's ever batted in first class cricket against the red bull was three hours this is not a guy who has got a cv that says to me stick him in as opener for england because that's a problem position he's got plenty of talent we've seen his talent in the white bull arena it's a different sport to me white bull and red bull but that talent can transfer across but not as an opener the opener is a specialist position where you need to have that Bloody-minded attitude. You're not going to get me out. I'm here to protect my mates that are further down this order. I'm taking the shine off this ball. I'm going to tire out these opening bowlers. I'm going to obviously score a few runs along the way of doing that. You can't stop me because I'm good enough. But I am going to basically be here for as long as I possibly can as an opening batsman for England. Jason Roy just simply does not have that in his head. And I wouldn't expect him to, because he's gone through his entire life, he's 29 now, he's gone through his entire life never having to have to do that in a cricket ground. And to throw him into an Ashes series, obviously he had that one test against Ireland, but to throw him into the pressure of an Ashes series and say, be our opener, Jason, and go out there and play your normal game, I, quite frankly, from the selectors, I think that's irresponsible. I just think it's irresponsible on behalf of the player because he's not that player, and they should, they should know that, and it's irresponsible for the England Test team. Stick him in at four and five, I'm quite happy with that because I think he's probably got the game to, when the ball's a bit older, to go out there and hit a few boundaries and, and to, to bat longer and bat his normal game, but not as an opener in Test match cricket. It just doesn't make any sense. In white ball, in an ODI, you can nick through third slip, you probably get four runs for it, and you'll probably go on and get 100, and everybody will say, what a fantastic innings. In red ball cricket in a test match, you edge to third slip, you're on your way, and you're shaking your head as you walk off thinking, what did I do wrong? For me, this is not the platform for Jason Roy to learn how to be a test opener. Stick him down at four and five, see if he can find his feet down there. But you can hear from this rant that I think it is a really, really bad decision to stick him down in his opener it just does not make any sense from any angle at all
1: i think you're right i think you know the most important thing that is that being a being an opener in red ball cricket especially test match cricket is such a a specialist thing to do now. You need to literally die for your wicket. You you need to basically tell the bowler that you're not giving it away. You're going to have to block, you're going to have to take a few blows, you know, you you, you might have to survive a few few scares or whatever, but you make your wicket as hard to take as possible. If the selectors think that Jason Roy is going to be the guy to go out and do that, then quite frankly they're wrong. I don't think most people would see him as the person to do that. What they're probably seeing Burns as is that kind of a player and just hoping that Roy can be complimentary in the sense that he's the one who's going to keep the scoring rate ticking along. But you're right. He's, the, the holes in his technique are so obvious to see that he's going to nick off and he's going to take swings at stuff that he shouldn't do. He doesn't. He doesn't have the patience or the application, in my opinion, to to do it. I know it sounds, you know, hypocritical. After the going into the first test, I, I said I was all for it. thought it was a different approach compared to the ones that had tried and failed in the previous years because we've been looking for for a replacement opener for for a long time now and we, we just haven't found one no matter who we've stuck in, what combinations we've used, that kind of stuff. It just hasn't happened and it was kind of a different route to go down to see if we could transfer somebody's form across from white ball cricket into red ball cricket thought in theory, it's a hypothesis that had a half a chance of working. Even if he gets a chance in this second test, I I don't, I don't see it going beyond that. But we'll see what happens, and I hope for Jason's sake that he proves us all wrong in the second test and plays a, you know, plays an outstanding knock of 120 off 200 balls. I just don't see it happening at the moment.
2: If he does that, I'm more than happy to eat my words. I think the the worst thing he could do is actually get a very pretty looking 50, because that will. Almost paper over the cracks because I think you're only then a test match away from him getting a pair. Because the Australian bowlers, you've got some serious talent. You know, Akash has mentioned Peter Siddle. You've got Mitchell Stark and Josh Hazelwood waiting in the wings. They'll have watched our first test match. You've got the bowlers that have been Pat Cumminson and um, James Pattinson that have already got the size of uh, uh, of Jason Roy. They're too good for him to bully them. Yeah, you know, they're going to stick it in that. In, in that path outside of Stump, Akash, and just wait for him to make his mistake and he will come. Well, that's true. Uh, he, he's, he showed his weakness in the first test, but I think it's too early to make the
3: decision to remove him because then we're saying that uh, you're not giving a long run for him. What the other decision that they could do is probably give him a long go in the domestic circuit and uh, tell their county to make him an opener so that they could try him out for the for the English team in the coming years. This is what they should have done ideally in the last two years so that he could be in a good position by now. I think they'll give him a test or two to prove his talent at at, at the opening uh, position. If not, then, then, then we might see a switch between number four number five depending on where Ben Stokes or Josh Butler might bat. so again I think we should give him a go for another one or two games and then probably come to a conclusion uh it's too early to come to a conclusion just after two matches so it's good to give him another
2: game or two there was a gap between well there is a gap between this first and second test match if there was a county championship game in between times say Jason Roy go back to Surrey open the innings and get some get some runs and get some runs under your belt but None of that is possible, as we've said in
0: this podcast. Discover one of the most beautiful lifestyle resorts in the Caribbean at the Accra Beach Hotel and Spa. Located on the south coast of Barbados, this beachfront property offers 224 rooms, sparkling pools, four restaurants, three bars an on-site spa, event and conferencing facilities and a welcoming team providing unparalleled relaxation to make your stay a memorable one. What are you waiting for? Book your reservation at this award-winning hotel today and experience the Caribbean dream. I think, as I said at the start of this, that Australia winning
2: that first Test match is actually brilliant for this series. Because it just sets it up. It maybe just dampens down England's expectations a little bit. We've seen how good Australia can be, but there's plenty of flaws in Australia as well. You know, you take Stephen Smith and Matthew Wade's runs out of their first Test performance, there's not a lot left. And there's plenty to go at, I think, if you're an England bowler. We also saw that their bowling can be a little bit ineffectual at times. If you have the patience and if you have the mentality to stick it out, you can get runs against that Australian attack. But equally, Australia will be looking at England and thinking there's plenty of weaknesses in their game too. So there's superb four Test matches ahead for me. That first test match is about as good as you can get. You know, you had those swings of momentum in that game. England got on top. Australia fought back. It was all, all the way through that test match until the final, or well, the fourth and fifth day, when Australia finally stamped their authority on that game. It was a superb test match. Looking ahead to the the four test matches to come, we're going to be back, guys, on Monday to record a, a second test preview. But if we're looking at it now, and we're looking ahead to the four test matches to come, Ollie, how confident are you that England can fight back and can get something from this series?
1: I'm still confident. I don't think we should be pushing any panic buttons just yet. It's one of those where I think... It dampens expectations, but in quite a healthy way. If we were coming into this perhaps overconfident, then it just notches us back down to a level where we still know what we're capable of doing. We've still got the home advantage, ultimately. You need to, just as the record books were thrown out of the window for Edgebaston, you know, Australia not winning there since 2001, etc. We need to assume the same is going to happen at Lords, and we can go and get a favourable result there. Not pushing any panic buttons just yet. I think you're right, it sets it up for a... For a really good series, but we've got to be confident in what we can do. Ultimately, you know, you look back at the first test. If it was in terms of winning sessions and and who was on top throughout various parts of the game, if it was a if it was a boxing match, I don't think they'd be too far apart on points. You know, we were arguably ahead in the well, not arguably, we were ahead in the game after one innings. Uh, it just got away from us in in a couple of sessions. So it's not as if like the scorecard suggests, we were absolutely hammered in that game. I think that um, it's just a case of, of fine-tuning and, and hoping that um, we get we get more consistent performances, particularly from the top order in the second test. So yeah, I'm still pretty confident that we can come back and, and win this series.
2: One thing England in the test arena of, of late have always done is they've uh, disappointed and then they've They've often bounced back, and England have often struggled to get two wins together in Test matches, but there's very few times they they lose consecutive Tests too. It wouldn't surprise me at all if England don't put in a, a very good performance at Lords. For you, Akash, I know you're probably supporting Australia over England. You're happy that they've won the first Test match, but it's not going to be easy from here, is it? Four Test matches to go. England will fight back.
3: It's certainly not easy in the first, and it's not going to be easy in the next four. The first test I think where England lost the plot was when they allowed Peter Settle to score runs and if they, if they had managed to get Peter Settle at one end it would have been much easier to probably get them bowled out for 160 or 178 max which would give them a huge advantage going into the last because they had to play the last day and where the ball is going to spin not even centimeters meters. so that's how it we already knew how it's going to play out in the last day so that's where I think England lost it out but the uh, for Australia, the signs are not all not all good because the top order failed. The middle order were also struggling at times, exception of Steve Smith and uh, Matthew Wade. I think they still struggle. So probably more batting oriented kind of performance from Australia with uh, Travis said converting those 50s into 70 or 100, holding on to the crease for for two or three more hours, which which will help them to get more runs and not rely on in the tailenders for runs. So I think that's Few points that England would focus for the next test, and uh, certainly it's not it's not going to be a one-sided uh, test series. there are going to be twists and turns, and certainly think it's going to be closer than we would have expected at the beginning.
2: It's fascinating, exciting. There's four tests to come. There are plenty of talking points and there's plenty of... Well, we've agreed and we've disagreed on on many factors during this podcast. And there's one thing for sure. There's going to be plenty more talking points as we go through the remainder of this series. They're going to come thick and fast after that second test match. If you get on a roll, who knows what can happen? If you start to lose faith then it could be a long four weeks for one particular captain. We'll be back again, as I say, on Monday next week to uh, preview the second test, which starts at Lords on Wednesday. Until then, Akash and Ollie, good to talk to you, and I'll see you soon. Thank you very much. And thank you as well to Paddy Power and to Cricket365 for supporting this Cricket Badger. Ashes Weekly, as we go through the remainder of this summer. As I say, we'll see you next week. The second test is coming and we can't wait for it.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network.